You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week, we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended for you to learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Moritz, where we discussed the annual general meeting of Berkshire Hathaway and a lot of crypto and DeFi-related stuff. So... If you missed that episode, uh, I invite you to go back and check it out. Jerry, always great to be back with you this week. How are things where you are in sunny Florida, I hope? Oh, yes. Very sunny. Very nice here. It's good to see you again and be back on uh, the podcast. So I've enjoyed listening. It's the first thing I do. As soon as you post them, I'm, I'm out there listening to Moritz and Rob and Mark and you, and writing down all the ways I disagree. No, but seriously, it's it's good to be back. Yeah, no, it's great to have you here. Speaking of Florida, speaking of Miami, I couldn't help, and I don't know if you're aware of this. Obviously, my understanding is that Florida, and particularly Miami, is, it's things are back to normal and booming and lots of stuff going on. But did you also know that apparently the whole Bitcoin community is uh, coming to Miami in only a couple of weeks. I look forward to seeing Moritz then. I didn't know he was coming to Miami. But no, I, I won't be there either. You have these Bitcoin people like myself and others who trade the Bitcoin futures who are not real Bitcoin people. And yet we're loving uh, this move or until this week, there was a lot of volatility there and sell-off. But yeah, I won't fit in with the hardcore Bitcoin crowd. Bitcoin crowd. <laughs> No, I did hear, it was quite interesting, I heard a conversation where the organizer of the conference, who is of course a hardcore Bitcoin and not so much any other coins, I think you had to be focused on Bitcoin in particular if you wanted to sponsor the event. And it was quite interesting to to listen to, to them talk about the upcoming events and what they had planned. And apparently one of the things they were looking to uh, see if they could do was to uh, get a helicopter up and actually dump money from a helicopter. I guess that's what they think the central banks are, are doing. So maybe they're doing it their own way. So uh, anyways, we'll of course expect a full report from you, Jerry, even though you say you're officially not going to go, but there we are. In terms of a market wrap this week, it was really the release of the US CPI figures that caught a lot of people's attention. And we really don't need to predict if inflation is coming, we can just now observe that it's here and it fits well into how we view the world where there is no algorithm for predicting markets, but only tools for calculating markets where there is no simple answer to successful investing, but where there is a process of how to follow trends. And thought today, I wanted to just share some observations that I took away from a trusted source that I believe have done on the fact-checking when it comes to inflation. So over the past four quarters, the United States has generated more wage inflation than at any point over the past 40 years. And here are some of the facts. Again, not predictions, and this has already occurred. Q1 2021 wages were 7.7% higher than Q1 last year. Q4 2020 was 7% higher, 
than Q4 2019. Q3 2020, wages were 6.2% higher than Q3 19. And Q2 2020, wages were 6.5% higher than Q2 2019. And so here, a little bit further into kind of the fact tour that we're going this morning. Over the past 10 years, prior to the past four quarters, the highest single quarter year-over-year wage growth was six, sorry, was 3.6%. And this happened in Q4 2018. In the past 20 years, prior to the past four quarters, the highest single quarter year-over-year wage growth was 4.5%, and that happened back in Q4 2006. And over the past 30 years, prior to the past four quarters, the highest quarterly year-over-year wage growth was 4.8% in Q4 1997. So in other words, you have to go back 40 years to Q3 1981 to find a higher quarterly year-over-year wage growth, and that number was back then 8.5%. So it isn't an anomaly. It's not a single quarter we're looking at. It doesn't seem transitory, uh, at least not in my view. This is four straight quarters of the highest wage growth numbers in 40 years. And for those who do keep score, the U.S. inflation back in 1981, when that happened, was 10.3%. Now, I know you might be thinking, surely if this was true, we would have heard some mention of this 40, sorry, we would have mentioned of this not happened in the last 40 years in terms of growth in wages. And surely someone involved in creating and approving and questioning the Fed's dominant transitory inflation narrative would have mentioned this little nugget. After all, it seems relevant. And I think this is why the last few years has been very different for investors when narrative trumps facts. Who are you to trust? Which is why, as trend followers, we only trust one source, the price of the markets. So with that little intro about inflation and wage growth, Jerry, I'm Curious to know what stood out to you in the last few weeks since we last spoke in terms of markets, in terms of performance, in terms of that. And then, of course, we'll dive into some really great topics that you brought up later on. So it seems that uh, this is a pretty tumultuous week where we had lots of bad performance, uh, trends reversing violently in the grains, especially in some Bitcoin reversals as well. Prior to that, it was just a continuation of making money almost all the time, almost every day. Another great month for us in April. But it was our trailing stops, our risk to exit. I have no idea what it is, but I'm sure it's X-rated or R-rated. It's not for uh, general consumption of children below 18, I don't think. Uh, The amount of money that we can give back if we stick to our systems and our exits that have been determined by this wonderful back test that tells us, hey, this is the way you should trade. This is your entries and exits are darn good. It's scary give back. So it's not been that much fun, but we've been anticipating this. And I think to some degree, even though I don't wouldn't rely upon a back test to in trade in this particular way, although I do think the back test would say that, hey, when you have these really good markets, and the markets don't take a lot of time to go up like the grains have, you're probably going to be susceptible to a big give back. Now, whether that's the end of the trend, we don't really know. Oh, I got caught up in lumber as well, still long. And there was so much news about lumber. This is another turtle story. A lot of the turtle story did not revolve around breakouts and following a system. It was contrary opinion defined as when too many people agree with your trade, you should be very nervous and worried. 
So I didn't put a parameter in there. It was a little touchy-feely. And especially the, the best source, the worst source would be the New York Times. There's a headline saying lumber is going up. Okay, whatever. They're on top of it. But when you get into the Uber, or back in the 80s, the taxi cab, if your driver says, hey, what about those soybeans? You should be very <laughs> nervous. So the lower the, the sophistication of the source. And I was getting a lot of phone calls and emails text messages about lumber. And no surprise, it's been limit down for a few days in a row now. After being limit up, I think 15 out of 20, it's been, or something like that. It's the inevitable. But about a third of the way up in this trend, months and months ago, it was limit down for a week probably, every day for a week. So not a good indication of the future, none of that is. It's just that the, this past week has been a little nerve wracking. Yeah. And of course, as we've seen many times, this is uh, quite normal and nothing to be not to be expected. I think that's uh, perfectly fine. And actually, as we'll probably come to, I don't actually think this week has done much damage anyway to the performance of the uh, industry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For our trend-following strategy this uh, week, as as well as trend followers in general, we did see some correction performance due to. The reversals in most markets in our portfolio, in particular commodities, like you mentioned, the grain saw some big price drops on Thursday and Friday. Soft commodities and metals also headed south, as did equities, of course, for the week, even though they had a bit of a recovery Thursday and Friday. And of course, these things will hurt long positions, which they did. And then helping to offset some of these losses, that really came from some short bond positions, which we've had for a little while now. And in particular, the German Bund and the long the UK long gilt, those really started to give ways. So far, it's mainly been in the US, but now Europe seems to be catching up a bit. Currencies and energies on our side were mildly positive, nothing to write home about. And for my trend barometer, it finished the week at... A reading of 39, which is soft. I wouldn't say it's super weak, but it's soft. And I think that reflects pretty well what happened in, in the markets, relatively speaking, in the last couple of weeks. And of course, there has been in the volatility space, there's been a lot of talk about why the fact that we haven't seen a 5% sell-off in the S&P since, I think, last October. And then, of course, we had the surprisingly, at least to some, low non-farm payroll number about a week ago. And equity markets seemed somewhat nervous, and they still do at these lofty levels. And we got close to a 5% drawdown in the following three, four days, but it didn't quite get there, so to speak. CPI numbers, as mentioned, were released on Wednesday, which were much higher than expected. And the S&P, I think, closed down on that day, but then the last couple of days, it suddenly turned around, and we've seen quite a move up in the last couple of days. But what's interesting about it is that at the same time, we've seen the VIX actually go up by almost 11 points uh, from last Friday's close to a high of 28 by Thursday. And then I think it did drop off Friday, but it's a 2x move compared to what the move we saw in the S&P. And that kind of to me, at least suggests, and to my colleagues who looks at the volatility space, uh, that there is some alertness at least when it comes to downside risk in the stock markets. On our side, we also saw a little bit of a loss this week in terms of our vol strategy, but nothing alarming at all. For my trend portfolio model, where, of course, as I mentioned often, that I can be a little bit more detailed, 
It is down 0.18% for the month. It leaves it up 14.17% for the year. Performance this month is really coming from the classical trend models. Group 1, as I call them, 0.43% up and the long-only models up about 18 basis points and nothing much to write home about. The shorter-term models are getting whipped around a little bit, so they're down 80 basis points so far this month. In terms of markets, base metals are doing best, followed by currencies and bonds, and the worst sectors for the month so far is really equities, and that's the main one. Single markets doing well, copper, Canadian dollar, Mexican peso, and at the bottom we see DAX, NASDAQ, and a little bit of soybean meal. In terms of the trading this week, the system actually did add some long gold, soybean meal, gas oil. It sold some German buns and some yen, and it got stopped out of long aluminum, DAX and NASDAQ, as well as some corn. And then it went short, the Nikkei. So I was just looking at the positions this morning, and it's still mainly long positions, but there are a couple of shorts now in the DAX and the Bund and the Yen, in the NASDAQ and Nikkei. Now, there could also be some other long positions, some other models, but at least some of the models are trying to play the short side. And to the number that you, Jerry, find very scary every week, it's not so scary. Risk to stop, 11.56%, down from 16.28% from last week. Stops are obviously with markets coming down for the most part the stops are getting closer so it's not too scary and the system did about 10 15 trades for the whole week so nothing nothing too busy now i want to shift up our program this week a little bit so i want to dive into questions we had from Shibujet and Aldo but before we get into that i was just curious jerry whether you saw the interview on CNBC this week i think it was with Stan Druckenmiller where he really took off the gloves when it comes to the things the Fed is doing and their policies right now, doing monetary and fiscal stimulus at a time where the economy at least seemingly is at a recovering healthy pace, and how he found that's incredibly irresponsible, really, which I think could lead to some quite good opportunities for trend followers. Maybe we're seeing the beginning of that already, simply because the economy can come. And I'm not just talking about the US one, the Europe and Japan is obviously doing the same. But these economies could get destabilized to some degree if they have overplayed their hand now with all the stimulus. I don't know if you saw it. It's rare to see someone who's been around for 40 years in the markets and who's obviously a high-profile investor, I think, be so direct about the Fed's policies. I didn't see that. I saw the headline, and he's a big complainer about the what's been going on since 2008. So I think that everyone is, once again, thinking, okay, this time we're going to have to pay the piper for all the stimulus and all the spending. This time we will get inflation. This time we'll go back to economics that we thought we understood, that you can't just print money forever and ever without inflation. So we have the right positions on. If it's going to happen, and this time is going to be different, we're short the bonds. That makes sense. The bond market is picking up on some inflation. The dollar is weak. That's a trend that I wanted to mention. It's a nice trend because it has its little sell-offs, and then the currencies go back to their highs. Unlike the grain markets, it just are a moonshot, and they just go straight up every day. <laughs> That's my stops cannot keep up with the profit where in the dollar trades, I'm long almost all the currencies except Swiss and yen. So I think um, we'll just have to wait and see and uh, see what happens and not get too 
excited. We've been burned so many times that it was going to be different commodities and the diversification was going to pay off. And yet the stock market keeps going right back up like we saw the last two days of the week. So I don't know. We're in good shape. We have the right positions on if something crazy does happen and it's bad for everyone else. It's usually good for the trend following CTAs. Yeah, indeed. Time will tell. And as I mentioned earlier, it's all about having a process and not trying to predict anything anyway. So let's jump to the two questions we have in. I think the first one is all the way from India, I have a feeling. And it is from Shibrajet. He writes, I'm a longtime follower of the show and really love the content. And I make sure never to miss an episode. I'm a high school grad from India. Oh, yeah, that's why I thought it was India. And hence, please excuse some of my questions if they seem like they're coming from someone who doesn't know a lot. No worries about that, Shibujet. I have been dabbling in writing my own trend-following algorithm, algorithm, and I'm using a method of statistical learning to contextualize the trading signal that I get. So the philosophical background to how I started thinking about building the algorithm is to form the mindset of a trend-following fund manager who may have a number of trend-following traders working under him slash her. What my model attempts to do is to reward those strategies, hypothetical traders in the program, that profit over a regime of price data, say a look-back period of around 120 days, and give their signals a higher weight, and give lower weights to those signals that have shown a weaker return signature. The model is continuously trained, and hence it, the, the weights that I add will keep changing. The price regimes keep shifting on the markets that I trade. Some of the findings that I have made using this approach is that the mean uh, reversionary models are far more profitable over smaller time periods, while pure trend models show better profitability over the long term, which is consistent with what Rob has said a few episodes ago. I understand that the show isn't very inclined to the idea of using statistical learning approach, but some thoughts on my approach would be greatly appreciated. Now, that's question number one. Since it was a long one, we'll stick with that one and I'll go to number two afterwards. So, I hope you got the idea of that, Jerry, about shifting the weights a bit based on profitability of the look-back period, if I sort of summarize it correctly. What are your thoughts? Of course, I don't care for any of that. It's not None of that is something that I would do. I think the problem is we want to be have a consistent system that doesn't really change. And we want to trade all the markets that are in our portfolio and not change those as well and use the same unit size risk, give each one the same risk all the time. So we're not ever making these changes. We're not adjusting. We're not learning. We're not rewarding systems or markets that have better performance. We're keeping everything the same. And I know the back test will show good performance, and that's the illusion of the back test. That's why I don't like the back test. The more parameters, the more options you give the computer, it will come up with a great answer. It'll just keep going until it does. So I think the sample size is uh, probably non-existent, or I don't even know how you would calculate a sample size that you're doing different things all the time, or you're willing to. But a good example of how the classic breakout or moving average strategies work is this past six months of how the classic trend following got into those grain trades that had probably not made money in 10 years, if not longer. And now they're the ones that are making all of the money and are just amazing moves. They look like 
all of uh, some of the soybean and corn look look like Bitcoin and lumber. And so I think that is a good example of when you don't change and you just uh, stick with the markets and trade them the same way all the time that you will be rewarded even by the markets that have tremendously underperformed. Yeah, and I think that that is a great answer. It's obviously not the answer you are looking for, Shibujet, because you're doing things differently. So let me come and help you to the rescue a little bit, because what you're doing, if I understand correctly, is actually something that I do inside my model trend-following portfolio, meaning uh, for some of the models, not all of them. So some of them are really, like Jerry says, it's really the same, but... I think in one of the models that I use, I do look at profitability over a certain period of time for that market model combination. And if it is more profitable, and I can't remember what the definition uh, exactly is, it has uh, a multiplier in terms of sizing its position at the inception. So I am not as dismissive maybe of the idea that there could be something to it because I do think that it is a it is a completely rules-based approach. So I don't think it conflicts with what we do as trend followers. And I don't see it as the fact that we're changing things. It is adaptive, but it is a slightly different approach. And I guess from my point of view, and maybe that's not, you know, how a lot of trend followers see things, that, and which is fine. And that is, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad idea sometimes to do things a little bit different meaning as long as you find something that you're comfortable with as long as you whatever you need to do in terms of research to get that comfort level but then more importantly that you're willing to stick with it so that it doesn't change and you don't make changes all the time then i think it's okay to have rules where you can have different risk levels but it has to be rules-based did i upset you too much jerry with that we're not going to agree, but I would just make another plug. The reason I'm grinning is because I say the same things over and over all the time. And so my presentation is not is not convincing. But we see this all the time where people can disagree. But oh no, but I will I'll I'll add to one thing to that, Jerry, and that is at dawn we we look at things the same as you, right? And treat everything the same. And and I think that's fine. But I remember back in 2006, 2007 when we were developing this trend following model. If you do the same thing like everyone else, it can be hard to stand out. And if you're a new firm, a new fund, and you need to do something that they can't buy with Chesapeake or with Don, then you have to think a little bit outside the box. And I think that's how we got the inspiration to do things a little bit different. And 13, 14 years after that, it performs very similarly to uh, other trend-following models, of course, but it can be different at the margin. Yeah. So what I was going to say is, I think that this idea that it's a rule and we and you must use rules and we're going to follow the rule and we like the rule and we're confident in the rule, I think that at the end of the day, it's a bad rule. And so that's not a good excuse. If you have a bad rule, one that is something you shouldn't be doing in every aspect of life, I have a rule. Well, that's not always going to be what carries the day. I'm glad you have a rule, but it's a bad rule. So I think that, let's just say it goes without saying that we, we're all in favor of following your having rules and following rules and being disciplined. But if it's a rule with a very low sample size, for instance, I take profit to something that I don't think is a good idea because there's not enough big trades to to have a special rule that says when you have a big trade, do something different. That right there eliminates that as a possible rule. So I, and I think that 
I've heard this, that the second point you made from a lot of young traders. And once again, I would just say to them, okay, you want to stand out. You're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. Oh yeah, I admit that this is not optimal, but I need to do this in order to please or to get assets. I'm like, what? You're going to do something you shouldn't do in order to achieve something that you want to achieve. This doesn't work. It could work. And then you sit down and you say, okay, I promise never to do this again. I did it. I knew it was wrong. I got a lot of AUM or whatever. Now I'll go back to doing things correctly. <laughs> so I think, unfortunately, and then I would just make a third point, and that is because tinkering and using backtest and adapting and doing things that are not classic trend following, one entry, one exit, a stop loss. I'm not saying that's what you have to do or that's Jerry's rule. I'm just saying, so add a couple more things to that. And I did a search. I don't think I ever said caveman, but I like caveman. And I'll give Rob credit for that. But I tried to find in Google that I had said caveman. And so I guess I don't get credit for it. I'll, I'll jump in on that. So I have to disagree here with, and I'm not sure that you're necessarily saying what, what I'm going to say here, but I don't disagree with taking profits and, and all of that. That's not trend following. That's not how we learn trend following. So completely agree. But a rule where you have a variable risk taking, meaning you have a base taking, you take for all trades, but sometimes you take a little bit more. I actually don't think that, I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that there's anywhere to say that's a wrong rule, just to put that on the record. So that was one comment I wanted to make on that. So ironically, in order to stand out these days, you have to do classic. <laughs> yes. So, so you're advocating that, well, do something different so you can stand out, show people your research, do your back test, add something to trend following, make it modern. I think I stand out because I don't do that now. But now I've had great performance and what I and the classic has done really well. So we'll see. I need to have a period and classic needs to have a period where it kicks butt. And it says, okay, here's what Classic did with good markets, traditional trend-following markets back uh, before 09, where we really did well, and better than the stock market, and with more diversification and less risk. And so let's see how Classic does now. And let's see, although I did have this idea, I'll get your thoughts on this, and just to be honest uh, about it, I have done many backtests of Classic and seen how great it is and how much money it makes. And yet, I don't know if I've ever seen a real live track record that uses a pure classic. I've seen one. Yeah. And and we talk about it from time to time because right. I think which one I'm talking about. And that is, as far as I can tell, it is as close to classic that you can get. Actually, maybe I've seen two and one of them I wanted to bring up. So let's do that at the same time. So one of them, we, you and I know who that is. And he at least says that he hasn't changed the model in 22 years since the firm was founded. And it is incredibly volatile. And therefore, you could say, and maybe, at least that's my guess, maybe it's harder for investors to keep and to embrace. And Classic doing really well. You don't need a lot of money to have a good business. So I think that's one thing. The other one, which is not a classic trend per se that you and I necessarily think of in terms of a signal generation, but it's something that was brought to my attention this week. And we've talked, I've actually had him on as a guest on the podcast uh, a few years ago, but Bill Dry seems to have gone on retirement. He's 
80-something. He's been around since certainly the 70s. I think 1976 is when his program started. And he, except for having left, as far as I can tell from uh, the databases, his program was archived at the end of March, I think. Had he stayed until April, I'm sure it would have been at an all-time high, but it was 1% or 2% from the all-time high. But here is someone that I, at least I would say from his methodology, which, by the way, is uh, fractions-based in terms of signal generation. By the way, you should go and listen to that conversation on the podcast back in the archive. He, Bill is such an interesting person and, and really great trend representative of trend following, I think. But anyways, his program, since the inception, finished, as according to this database, with a compound annual rate of return of 15.2% over all of those years, 40 plus years, with an annualized volatility of 30% and a maximum drawdown of 51%. That is fantastic performance. I think if you invested $1,000 back then, you would have 70 times that at the end of, of that run. So there is another, as you say, there are few, but there are few people who could really say, yeah, we stayed with Classic. And and it was a wild ride, but it was a good ride. We're looking at it today, uh, Saturday morning, and this finished this week. And the Classic breakout exits are a long ways away in these grains and in lumber and in everything, basically. It's so hard to do. And, and I don't think that there is that many people doing it. And that's the motivation behind, let's get a fast computer and do a fancy backtest. And the last thing we want to do is sit through this volatility and vol so volatility targeting as much as Moritz and I d uh, talk about it. Underline talk. We don't like it. We say we don't like it. We're like sitting there going, I wish we did it. Now would be a perfect time. I wouldn't have on these massive positions that have made so much money. So someone asked me yesterday on Clubhouse, what do you do? And I'm like, I just keep thinking about looking at the options and the parameters from uh, the back test and saying this is a good approach. It's a good approach for your career, just like you mentioned, Dreis, and uh, great career. I'm interested in today. Can you help me today with these trades? They're so important. And the, and the classic says, no, I really can't help you. I hope it works out for you. If you did this system historically and in the future, you're going to be super happy. You're going to say, just like the back test, it's going to make a, a, a substantial amount of money given your maximum loss per trade, your 50 basis points, your 30 basis points. It's not going to give you a good sharp or um, sortino, as if I even know what that is, and these fall-based, <clears throat> and the drawdown might be very nice, the 50% drawdown you just mentioned. <laughs> then after you said 50% drawdown, you said, that's great performance, and I was going, Okay, yeah. A lot of people would say that's not great performance because of that drawdown. But I think within the context of what he's doing is undoubtedly he had a great career and a great strategy. So what are you going to tell yourself? What stories do you tell yourself during the day and at night that makes you uh, stay with what you're doing and continue to have confidence that it, part of the success will be dependent upon you doing the trades and following these rules, very robust rules, with big drawdowns, you have to just keep telling yourself the draw, the back test is legit, and I'm going to I have that confidence. Not on these trades, I may give back a lot of profit, 
But for my career in the past and in the future, this is the best strategy. It reminded me also of this David Drew's quote that I think can have many interpretations. And that is, he said, you can tell if a systematic, if a trader is, has robust systems by the fact that they're having big drawdowns. And I take that to mean they're not stepping in. I can step in right now and limit any potential drawdown. Just whatever rule I want to come up with, a spur of the moment rule, a rule that I tested, it doesn't matter. It's just a bogus rule that allows me to get out of my trade prior to the, the breakout exit, and it will reduce my drawdown. And that's his way of saying, yeah, and it's not that robust. But a guy who st stays in there with the 100-day low, the 125-day low, whatever low or moving average crossover that is very correlated to those lows, he is going to, at some point in his career, going to give back too much, quote unquote, too much. That Thus, I do know he's not overriding. And I think that touches on a great point, the David Drews quote. And, and I heard that in a different way this week, and I just can't remember where I heard it, but it's a good uh, thing to just be reminded of. And that is that all the evidence shows that high sharp strategies are the ones that's going to have the biggest surprise drawdowns at some point. And and I think this is exactly what David Drews is saying. We have low sharp strategies, but there's no surprise. The drawdowns are predictable and they are pretty much the same when they occur in terms of times your annualized volatility or whatever it might be. And when I made the comment about, yeah, that's great performance of 15% with a 50% drawdown, people think equities are great, right? 7-8% performance with a 50 plus percent drawdown as well. Here you're getting at least twice the returns for the same amount of drawdown, not even in counting tech stocks, which had an 80 plus percent drawdown or whatever it was. Yeah, good for him. And uh, hopefully he'll enjoy retirement. He's a big surfer. I remember back when I interviewed him many years ago, he was that was really his passion. So trend following is a great business, really. He could do his surfing and he could do his trading once a day and be happy. Yeah, funny how that works. And I think uh, if you get out there and surf and get away from the markets and follow your system, you're not as tempted to tweak it. There's tremendous cost. And now no screens to, no buttons yes. to click, no screens to look at. Exactly. Yeah. Now, we had one more, two more questions, and the next one from Sabajit, and you can see, or Shibujit, I should say, sorry about that. As a high school grad, I think you are a deep thinker already in terms of trend following, so I like that. Obviously, you haven't said exactly when you graduated, but I have a feeling that you are young, so that's great. You have time on your side. You did uh, have a quick question about whether we thought that you're, uh, from more from a coding perspective, that whether your uh, strategy seemed a bit too com complicated because as we often advocate, keep it simple. And I think the short answer is here, yeah, you do need to be careful with that. Too many moving parts can make it simple and or can make it uh, break and not be as robust as, as Jerry and I would like. So, so yeah, keep that in mind. And then the last question is really something that Jerry would be best to answer here. And that is, you say, why don't trend followers trade outright cash equities? This question has been nagging me for a bit and love uh, for it to be addressed. Why do trend followers not trade cash equities, Jerry? <laughs> Let's ask the one trend follower who does trade cash equities why everyone exactly. else doesn't. Yeah, it's frustrated me too. It's nagged me, I think is what he said. Yeah. I've just been on a mission. If I'm going to be very concerned with my parameters, one entry, one exit, a stop loss, I'm going to have to make that kind of a medium to longer term strategy 
boy, it sounds like Jerry doesn't really care so much about risk control, portfolio control. Why don't you just trade your equity a little bit more or add some things to your system like volatility targeting? And I'm like, oh no, I'm giving you the wrong impression. I do care probably more than I should about drawdowns and volatility, but adding markets is the only safe way. It's the best way, the safest way, not the only, but the safest and best way to have no impact upon your robustness of your systems and your sample size, and yet dramatically reduce your risk. So I've added markets. I've been on this mission my entire life, just, okay, if you're not going to do anything on the research side, if you're not going to evolve and add things to your systems, then you've got to add these markets. And so in the 90s, I was like, okay, we got to add single stocks. Why don't we trade these single stocks? And there's so many reasons to do that. Diversification, creating your own portfolio of stocks to maximize that level of diversification versus a cap-weighted index and other reasons as well. So it baffles me. And I think the CTAs themselves would be thought of higher by the outside if we traded cash equities. And we could talk about cash equities. We could talk about Tesla and Zoom and be in that particular game, even if we're only trading 15 or 20% of our portfolio in the equities. So I don't oh, know. Oh, but you just told me that I could, we can't do things to make us stand out when it comes to risk. But if we trade equities, isn't that the same? We can enter the conversation that, that yeah, other adding, people adding markets and diversifying, trading lumber and Tesla and single stocks, that, that's a free pass for standing out and being different. And But it's cost CTAs, AUM, and respectability by bragging about only trading indices. I have no idea, and not to even talk about worse performance. Because when, when I did the research, there will be times where the indices have better performance than the single names, and you're always subject to which single names did you choose but the diversification shows up in the drawdowns where you're peeling off trades positions when the, before the market crashes. And so you just have a smaller drawdown historically, at least the way we did the research. The drawdown was a little bit smaller with no sacrifice in profits. And CTAs would never trade the dollar index alone or a commodity index alone, even a grain index, if there was such a thing. If this was a panacea, some of the larger CTAs would create their own proprietary indexes and trade them. But no, but for some, there's a blind spot there. I think it goes back to a sad situation. I was part of the managed futures industry when it got started and going, and there were so many unfortunate things going on in the managed futures industry at that time and one of them was, uh, here's your managed account. You can only put futures in it. So it'll be better for the client if I traded cash equities. Look, stop. This is not about clients and what's best for clients necessarily. What's good for the uh, wirehouse and for Chesapeake is for you to play this game and trade these indices. And we're not interested in adding more diversification at because at, you're making life more difficult for us. Yeah, and I think a, a fair assumption as well, or a fair comment to why people don't trade it as, as much as they probably should, is that, of course, the short side is a bit more complicated than trading a futures contract. And as we've learned this year, that the shorts can be a dangerous place to be in equities, at least. And, and of course, that comes down to how you select the equities to trade and all of that. But still, thanks for those questions.
We have a question here from Aldo. Aldo writes, hello, I'm a regular listener to the podcast. It's a great resource of information. I'm learning a lot. I'm teaching myself using podcasts and books, the Neanderthal trend-following style. So not caveman, but Neanderthal trend-following style. That's even older, I imagine. I'm a retail trader currently working on structuring my strategy while learning Python so that I can backtest it properly. Not trading live yet, just observing. I'm looking at a just slightly above 20-day high breakout and using two, three ATRs to place stops. Exits would be once the price closes um, below a two-week low. I have two questions. Being my, uh, being my retail account is very little. I can only trade micros, so very limited number of markets. Would that work against my strategy and make it hard to profit for lack of diversification? Is it even worth trading um, a small account? And then second question is, how would you implement pyramiding into positions once the trend confirms it's going in my direction? And how would you use stops to maintain constant risk exposure while pyramiding? I'll, I'll go first on this one because you would have heard me say before that I do think personally, although I'm I'm a big proponent of people trying to develop their own trend-following strategies, I, I am also realistic enough to feel that trend-following really only works with diversification. I think you can't say trend following works if you're just trading a couple of stocks or a couple of different markets. I don't I think it's there's too much luck or, or bad luck involved in that. So if you can't get the diversification, I would certainly suggest that you invest with managers who can give you that diversification at a fair price, of course, until you're ready to trade your own account and get at least a decent amount of diversification in in that. So th- that's how I view it. I am aware that there are CFDs and now there are micro futures, so it might get easier for smaller accounts to participate. But that's how I feel about it. What about you, Jerry, to that particular question? I like his breakout and ATR stop-loss method. I think a little bit longer term is probably going to be better. I have some experience with these commodity ETFs and my and I know our friend Sam posted something on Twitter a week or so ago about a list of commodity ETFs that he trades. I know some young traders that are long soybeans and the euro in an ETF. So I think to practice, to get going, to start, to have fun and understand, you can get a fair amount of diversification the, but I agree with you, of course. The maximum, the best way to go about it is to is to invest in a CTA like Dunn or Chesapeake, obviously. Trading is a little bit, for a lot of people, like playing golf. Like, I need to trade. Like, I don't need to go out and carry your bags. It's not going to be fun for me. And it's all about the fun. But I'm a horrible golfer. I don't care. I want to golf. Golf is fun. Well, you're. A, I'm not a great trader yet, but I want to trade. I, I get it. And I understand. But you brought up uh, something else recently that I wanted to comment on, and that was these podcasts and listening to podcasts and reading books. They're just and Clubhouse and everything. There's so much good information out there. The internet, uh, the turtle rules, everything is out there. And so people ask uh, a lot, uh, "Why don't you do a turtle class? You've been given so much from Richard Dennis and other people. Don't you feel a moral and ethical burden to help me?" You know, this is the emails I get or Twitter. Start a, a second turtle class or program project. And I'm thinking like, 
with all of the talking that we all do, are you, what are you missing? You're not missing anything. It's back to Richard Dennis's idea that I could print all of this on the front page of the newspaper and people wouldn't follow it. I think that originally meant they wouldn't be disciplined. But now I think it means more like they would argue with me about it. And so I think we, we don't get a lot of everything Jerry said or Niels or Murat said, I agree with. You know, it's arguing, it's doing things different. It's not everything that they've heard and the classic stuff that there's a lot of evidence that it does work. Okay, okay. So the second part of the turtle program was all the turtles getting a million dollars to manage on January the 2nd, 1984. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. But you're getting, go out and find your own money. And so this, everybody, there's so much information out there. It's what are you going to do with it? Do you believe it? Do you take it seriously? Do you see the common sense of what we're saying? Or is it going to be more debating and arguing? And these questions that we've answered a million times. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jerry, actually, because I think this was part of the reason and the idea when you and Moritz and I, two and a half years ago, decided to do this weekly conversation, podcast, it was really to give people that quote-unquote guidance, but also the support and to help people stay focused. This is also why I say it every time when we start the podcast, I used to more or less the same intro because it is, we are looking at the world through a rules-based investor's lens and we are here to keep you, I can't even remember the words now, but to keep you focused and to keep on the journey because it is a journey. So I think you're absolutely right that there are most of the things that you got from Richard Dennis, that's exactly what we're trying to give people every single week if they pay attention and are willing to do the work. Yeah, the money they have to find themselves and do. But other than that, that's exactly what, what we're trying to do. So I hope that's uh, helpful. Then the other question you have, Aldo, is how we would implement pyramiding into a position once the trend confirms. And I think what you need to be aware of there is that the way we increase positions up to a certain lim limit is just by having more than one time frame. So you're talking about using a certain day's high to get in. We might have five or six of those different time frames, 20 days, 30 days, 40 days to keep it super simple. And that's how you build up, or as you say, pyramid your position. Pyramiding to us is probably a slightly negative word because we don't pyramid with profits. We That's how I uh, always understood pyramiding. We just increase our position size up to a certain limit. And vice versa, we would get out at different stages depending on when these stop losses that we would use would get hit. So just to answer that question. But thanks, Elder, for the question. In fact, just, and, yeah, just go say ahead. one thing about yeah. that question. I've, this is another thing that I hear. I've heard it on the podcast, and that is I don't agree with this idea that whatever anybody means by, quote, the trend has been confirmed, unquote. I don't think that the trends are never confirmed. I feel really good on Friday. It's no better feeling on Friday afternoon when soybeans and corn close at an all-time high. It's today's high, it's the month's high, it's the year's high, and it's my equity's high. Golly, what feels confirmed is how wonderful I am and what a great trader I am. I love that feeling. But the trend has been confirmed? And then what happens on Monday morning when they both open limit down? Oh, that's not... Yeah, that happens all the time. Look at lumber, look at all the... I don't think there is... All we're saying is if you buy that high, that breakout, and you sell the other, the exit breakout, over time, you'll make money. And your expectation per trade is a few ATRs. 
but it, it's not making a comment on this particular trade. And now I can add to it because it's been confirmed. Nothing is ever confirmed. Limit up today, it could be limit down tomorrow. I've seen it happen so often, and you want that to be the case. Ah, this now, I have more confidence. You may have more confidence, but it's unwarranted to have more confidence. I don't, I think Rob has mentioned some concept like this as well in his trading. So that would be another great thing for us to discuss and get into the details. I'm not, I don't know his details of what he means by that, but I don't believe in confirmation. Do you? There is no such things in an uncertain and unknown world. And uh, knowing what you don't know, which is our motto, so to speak, as trend followers, I think that's actually excludes being confirmed or being too confident. The market has an amazing ability to humble us all the time. And I don't think that's going to change. And I think this is also when people ask, and they ask us a lot about that, Jerry, you'll know that, of course, and that is how to stay even keeled when you go through a drawdown, but also when you go through great periods. And that's exactly part of that is as, as when it gets really bad, it's never confirmed that it's going to continue to be bad. And when it's really great, it's never confirmed that it's going to continue to be great. And, and maybe it's something you have to just learn over time. But it's also the narrative, right? We hear this narrative from other strategies where they feel so certain about a certain a, a specific outcome. But there is no such thing as certainty. We cannot know what the future holds. So, yeah. Yeah, I would say that this would be something for Moritz to comment on and Rob, because they have uh, very good backtesting capabilities. But we did a backtest one time. And so if System 1 gets in first, let's say Systems 1 has an expectation of two ATRs, and System 2 does as well. It gets in later, but it has the same expectations, similar breakout systems. But if system one has a one ATR profit, then the expectation for that trade is now one ATR greater. So I do see that as recognizing the fact that all your trades may have a two ATR expectation, but the chances that this trade is better than two ATRs, if it already has a five ATR profit, is overwhelming. That group of trades will now has a higher expectation, but it doesn't mean that particular trade is going to make more than its average ATR of two ATR. So I think that makes perfect sense. And I could help people who want this confirmation. But once again, these particular trades, nothing can be confirmed about what's going to happen with the current trades we have on. They're a group they're part of a large group of trades that have certain characteristics, but it's the group, not any particular trade. I guess the only way maybe we can think of the word confirmed is that a signal can be confirmed. You can get confirmation that you should now be long or you should now be short. That confirmation we take every day, but that's based on the rules. But it doesn't confirm that there's going to be a trend of any sort. We just don't know. Okay. All right. Now, Jerry, you brought up a couple of points. The first one, I, I'm just going to read it um, because it's a short tweet that you liked. And I think this is very useful for people who may not be following Wayne, who's uh, been a guest on the show and who's a great thinker and has definitely the way with words. Wayne tweeted, there's a wide a variety of trading tips from books and courses, but at the core of every rule to follow, at the very essence of the journey to successful trading is conquering fear. Ironically, overcoming the fear of losses is one of the greatest leaps 
to unlocking more wins. Yes, it is. And I think we, I spoke of that uh, earlier about having a bad uh, couple of days in the grain markets and saying, oh my gosh, I'm fearful of uh, giving back these profits. And I think it's funny that he uses the word losses because that's what I hear when other people talk about reasons that they do things, that it's based upon losses. But once again, I don't think that these are losses. These are profits. We're giving back profits. So we've increased our anxiety because now we've redefined a profitable, a incredibly profitable give back and an incredibly profitable trades give back, almost insignificant uh, give back from the peak profit as a loss. I thought you guys had the losses covered. You're going to risk, take a small loss, let profits run. And the small loss can be 20 basis points, 50 basis points of my AUM. That sounds awfully small. I told my wife how much I would lose on a certain trades if 10 trades or 15 trades in a row went wrong. She was so shocked that I'm such a wimp and I trade so small. And, but now we have to redefine what a loss is. A loss now needs to be a give back of a mega profit. And we need to do all kinds of things. We can't let those profits run. Now we've redefined them as losses. And now this fear has got totally out of control. We've gone from being fearful of taking, of uh, stringing together a lot of losses, even if they are small, we don't like that, to now we've converted that into, we can't even let our profits run anymore because we have to assume that any give back is going to reduce our sharp or create a drawdown. When in fact, I think we're just internalizing this fear of not making as much money as possible. I know that's all I care about and trying to figure out a way to come up with a rule that I think is probably bogus that allows us to feel good about uh, taking some risk off the table because of this fear that we have. And we need to be rooted and get our confidence in the back test of a very robust system that says, hey, yeah, you look at those drawdowns historically, but still, this is the best way going forward. Yeah. No, absolutely. Now, the next section, I'm going to let you take the lead on this because it was something you wanted to comment on from a conversation I had with Mark a couple of weeks ago. I think it concerns trading more markets. So maybe you can just give us a little bit of context and then add kind of your thoughts to what Mark and I had talked about. I think mainly uh, it was Mark's comments that you were focused on here. Oh, it's this eternal topic that we always have a discussion, disagreement on trading 100 markets or 50 markets or how many markets should we trade? And I just wanted to, I think that you guys talked about the, about this idea and I agreed with most of what was said. I just thought that the impression was that trading more markets can not be as good as Jerry says it is all the time. And I think Mark's point was that five or 10 markets are going to make all your profit, usually in a year, because we're trend-following traders and we're making money on these outlier moves. So I think I agreed with that. And then he talked about adding more markets, waters down the performance. So adding 50 more markets to your current 50, it's just obviously going to water things down. And I thought, I don't really think that that's necessarily true. And I would uh, replace the 5 to 10 markets with maybe 5 to 10% of the trades of your portfolio, of your trades. So I think that's the way I look at it. And of course, it goes on to say, if you're just adding highly correlated markets, 
then you are, I agree, you are watering down the other markets. But a good example for me would be if I only traded uh, 25 or 50 markets, I would have the same exposure uh, to the grains as a group that I have now. Now I've taken that same exposure and and spread it over 20 different grain markets versus 10 or five. And there will be one market, let's say soybeans or corn or bean oil, that is the best performer that I have watered that down some, but it's possible that someone who trades 50 markets has left it out completely. So there is no uh, way to predict uh, which of those grain markets is going to have the best trend and be the big outlier. But there is no uh, downside over time, over a long period of time of trading all of those grains and not just limiting it to a few and recognizing that there is some differences in the corn and the soybeans and the meal and canola and rapeseed, but they're, they are a little different and they can offer some diversification. Yeah. I've never done the study, but when you when I think about the, the top managers that's been around for a long time, I do recognize that there are different philosophies, right? But I think you could say with, with those that all of them trades at least the basic 50, 60 markets that we all kind of trade. And then from there, you have a, a group that trades maybe 100, and you have a group that has more than that, 150, 200 markets, for sure. Now, I've never looked at whether there is overall long-term any difference in performance or even the profile of the performance. But I certainly agree that there will be a difference in uh, shorter-term performance because, as you rightly say, you could have missed the market that, like Bitcoin, definitely Bitcoin and probably Ethereum as well going forward, would have made a huge difference for for those who were involved in that compared to those who didn't have it. But it's interesting and it's funny with all these choices that we make, right? Especially if you deal with external clients that I do, where you sometimes can be criticized for not doing something because, oh, look over here, they're making so much money over here and you're not doing that. But you never hear the other side of the story when they might be uh, experiencing a rough patch because they are doing all this. You never get the credit for not doing it. But I think the key thing is that as managers, we we all make our own choices and and that that's what makes us slightly different, yet we're very alike in the long run. And it's almost like when you look at performance, if you look at trying to predict one-year rolling returns, it's impossible. If you try to look at five-year rolling returns, it gets a little bit easier. But look at 15, 20, 30-year average annual, annualized returns, and you can pretty much guess what they're going to be within a couple of percent. Yeah, and all of these trades have, all the trend-following trades have the same expectation so you shouldn't make less money or more money. Uh, for If you trade 50, I trade 100, we use the same risk budget and leverage, then we're going to make the same amount of money. It's just intervening time. Does this month, do you care about mm-hmm. this month? Would you rather have an 8% drawdown or a 10% drawdown? And then in hindsight, people are like, who cares about that? But at that time, we sort of cared. And there was the <laughs> downside of trading 100 is like zero. It's a little bit more hassle. If you're a large trader, hell, you can't even trade lumber or milk or uh, rough rice or some of these less liquid markets or bean oil even maybe. And and if you get so big, you can't trade the commodities very much, gold and uh, copper maybe. We would be critical of that because we like trading a full complement of LME and grains, for instance. Yeah, so it doesn't really matter a great deal. It's just that it's free. There's no downside. And so, crap, when there's no downside, 
let's just do it, but you don't have to do it. It's, uh, we're arguing about something that's pretty small or debating something that's, that's not a huge deal. Once you get to the 50, I think you're pretty fine. Yeah. There's one thing, though, I don't think that any trend follower will disagree with. And so people might be interested in what the hell is he talking about because even Moritz and Jerry and Nils and Rob and Mark disagrees from time to time. But there's one thing I think we won't disagree on. And it's something that I just uh, was reminded myself about and I wanted to share my my findings because I often hear uh, when I talk to uh, potential investors, they say that, okay, but I don't really think that with the central banks being in control that we need trend following right now. We'll buy it when we need it. That's what people will tend to say. And I'm going to say, looking at past history, I don't see any evidence that people can actually predict when you need trend following. Like, you don't need, you don't know when you need insurance for your car, for your house, or whatever it is. So there is this discussion about always people tending, having a tendency to try to time the markets or their investments with trend following instead of focusing on time in the market or time in trend following. So I think we can all agree as trend followers that you should have it as a core allocation at all times. So I'm thinking, okay, so how could I prove that? How could I visualize this to investors? What it means to miss the best month of trend following? What if you miss just the 10 best months in the last 37 years, for example, in our track record? If I took that program as, a, as an example and said, okay, you could be invested for 37 years in all of the months, no speculation. Or you could be trying to time it, but then by trying to time it, you miss the 10 best months of the track record. People would be surprised, and I, for regulatory reasons, I can't quote exact numbers, but I'll give you the range. So if you missed the 10 best months of performance of, of Don's program, your performance, your cumulative total performance over 37 years drops by 90%. So you make 90% less by missing just 10 months worth of performance. That's incredible. If you had the MSCI index, it's not as pronounced, but you lose two-thirds of the performance. That I can talk about because that's not anything to do with our strategy, but you would have made 3,500% if you were just invested since November 84 in the MSCI. But if you missed the 10 best months of the MSCI, you would be down to 1,200%. That's two-thirds lower. For the World Government Bond Index, you would have made 821% over that 37 years, but you would have missed 50% of that. So you're down to 430% if you missed the 10 best months of the uh, World Government Bond Index. But as I said, in trend following, I'm pretty sure it's the same for you, Jerry, for most trend followers. If you miss just the 10 best months of our long track records, you basically miss or you miss out on most of the performance from a compounding point of view. And what I, yeah, and I, when you were saying all that, I was just thinking, okay, so let's say I, maybe I could possibly stomach 50%, only 50% of my assets in trend following and 50% long stocks, let's say. And if I wanted to time it though, what would, I, what would be a good timing strategy? Well, a good timing strategy would be continuing to increase my investment in CTA trend following the worse it got, the worse it got. And who the hell is going to do that? They do the opposite. They do the opposite. So, well, I'm going to, trend following hasn't done well, so I'm going to move my 10% down to five, or my five down to two. 
I talked to an allocator one time about allocating to Chesapeake, and he had a small commitment to CTAs, and he said, here's the way my CTA allocation has gone. I give uh, 5% to Bill Eckhart, and then I redeem when he has a losing period. Then I go back to give 5% to Bill Eckhart, and then I redeem again. <laughs> so to ask people to say, hey, look, when trend following really has a bad run, here's what happens when you uh, go from 50% trend following to 75% trend following. That really is going to help to do the exact opposite, uh, trend follow uh, the trend followers. So bad idea. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly what ends up happening. And I can, I think if you just look at the numbers of the AUM and the outflows and inflows from the industry, the last few years, there's been a lot of outflow from the CTAs and trend followers. And so no one have really, not, not no one, but a lot of people have completely missed out the quite strong performance that we've seen because they did not believe that in this central bank driven environment that trend following would work. So it's classic. And this is just one way of trying to illustrate to people the importance of having this core location and not worry about trying to time it. People need to look at beneath the hood, which I hate that term, but they need to look inside of what's going on. It's not a trend following Jerry or Niels. It's what, what's going on in these markets? It's Are you happy with the no commodity exposure? Is, what, what do you think about your currency exposure and your stock and bond exposure? Do you still want to be long bonds? Or And I think one of the scariest things now is now people are interested in owning commodities. Oh my gosh, no. That was last August. Yeah, no, it is not the time to get into commodities. Being in commodities when the breakout happened in the grains, in the metals, with massive profits now, that's what you want to be. This has been missed. Let's wait for some churning and some sell-off and some brand new trades. We may go short. The next trade for us in the commodities may be short commodities. But now is the time I want to jump into commodities. Now I think inflation might be picking up. Oh my gracious, this is like crazy thinking. Look beneath what's going on and what you're missing in your portfolio where the CTAs traditionally have had every market, every asset class. How can you be more diversified than the CTAs? You can't even have commodities in your portfolio or FX unless you're trend following them. I love what the, trend, what the commodities do for Chesapeake's portfolio, but what do we do for the commodities? We make them palatable. We'll get you in with a systematic approach that has yielded profits without no, with giving you the diversification with the profits as compared to the buy and hold, which hardly any of these commodities will stand up over a long period of time as going up. So that's their definition of we can include it in their portfolio. Has it gone up over time? We don't need that. We can get them in your portfolio, longs and shorts, today with the trend-following approach. Yeah, no, absolutely. But if anyone else has other ideas uh, to how we can best make this point, do share them with us. You can always uh, email them along with any questions you have for the show, of course, to info at toptradersonplug.com. And we'll be happy to uh, comment on it. And we'll, of course, be happy to continue to answer questions that we get from you. In terms of performance for the month, despite some of the turbulence Jerry and I talked about today, we still see as of Thursday, and I think Friday was a good day, by the way, for trend followers, but with the beta 50 index still up 1.74% for the month, up 6.87% for the year. 
Sokgen's CTA index up 1.31% for the month, up 7% for the year. Trend index, very strong, up 2% for the month, up not more than 9% for the year. And the Sokgen short-term traders index down about 35 bips so far this month, up 1.8% so far this year. And in comparison, so far at least, MSCI World Index is completely flat for the month, but still up nine and a quarter for the year. And the bonds started to sell off. So now the World Government Bond Index is down about 38 bips so far in May. Anything else, uh, Jerry, that you wanted to bring up before we uh, wrap up for today? I just wanted to mention that I'm always looking for more diversification. So I trade some of the bond, the very liquid bond ETFs, corporate bonds, high yield, emerging market tips. And recently the CBOE has come out with two new bond futures. One's a corporate bond Mm -hmm. and one is a high yield corporate bond. And so that's good news. I would prefer to trade the futures versus the ETFs. And so, yeah, I'm just... Are they liquid yet, those? Uh, no, they just started okay. last week or the week before. Okay. So there's they should gain liquidity in those markets, but we'll see. So put that on your radar. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, wouldn't that be great for trend followers to be able to add, add high yield and, and, and corporate bonds, both on the short and long side? And obviously, I would imagine that the short side would be quite interesting, but that's just my personal opinion right now. But uh, yeah, that that's a great new addition. Dad, uh, we're short all of these uh, government bonds in uh, Europe and Asia and US and Canada. But some of the ones I mentioned, the tips, and can't think of the rest of them, but they're long trades. So that would be nice to have that diversification, this yeah. inflation, and it's not showing up in the tips somehow and some of the other bonds that we trade so that, that are have ETFs, yeah. Speaking of which, there I heard about another ETF that's just launched. Actually, one of our previous guests, Mike Green, is involved in with that. He changed uh, his job away from Wayne actually recently, and now he works with a new ETF provider and they're basically providing or have just launched an ETF where you can essentially hedge yourself against rising interest rates but in the long run so if you're not big enough to try and do it with futures yourself you can buy this ETF which is essentially something that then will go out and uh, buy I imagine options I think it on on seven year interest rates Uh, so if interest rates go up over the next seven years that's where you're going to make your money I don't know much about the product I thought it was interesting and I think the innovation in this space with different ways where we can actually hedge some of that risk is a good thing for sure. Yeah, of course, as I should mention as well, and that is if you have not already uh, reviewed and and rated the the podcast, we would be ever so grateful if you would go to iTunes and do because it really does help us uh, be seen by more people. We would kindly encourage you to do that. Next week, Mark is back. So make sure you send your questions in for him, info at toptradersonplug.com. And we will hopefully get into some interesting conversations and topics based on that. And uh, all there is left to say is from Jerry and me, thanks ever so much for listening. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.